This short podcast series explores how drawing might help to manage the way that traumatic events are processed. I'm Tony Hull, and in the second episode, I'll be reflecting on some of the psychological aspects potentially involved. I'll be looking at Emeritus Professor of Clinical Psychology at UCL, Chris Bruin's dual representation theory, and how this might explain aspects of my own experience drawing through trauma. This podcast series was made possible by an Arts Council England Project Award. Waking, the air feels heavy. It seems to shroud everything, pressing itself into the corners of the room. Silence hums like a field recording turned up too loud, and rising from my bed, I feel I'm moving against both gravity and air. At the window, with a single practice movement, I open the blind. Early morning light reveals rooftops silhouetted against a flat grey sky. Looking over my side of the bed, where I folded back the duvet, the indent in the pillow creates an impression of the space occupied by my head last night. It is very precise, suggesting a stillness in sleep that surprises me. Where the grey duvet cover extends to your side of the bed, its surface is completely smooth, rising gently towards the low mound of pillow. I sit at my desk by the window in the half-light. The radiator next to me is cold. The girls are asleep and will remain so for at least the next hour. My temples feel tight and the underside of each foot is numb. I'm conscious that I've begun to order the mundane tasks that will fill the first part of my day before the school drop-off and then my arrival at hospital. A small act of control an attempt to establish some sort of agency, perhaps. I sit in the silence, feeling the intensity of your absence. More than anything, I miss the vibration of your words, the purity of your voice. At the hospital, now only your gaze reaches out into the world. I crave the sound of your words, the medium of your thoughts to hear the rawness of feelings translated into speech, sound given form. Now, though, your body is inert and nothing of you is voiced. The words propagated by your imagination remain unspoken. It's in the solitary quiet of the early hours that I most lose control of my thoughts. I'm stalked by the image of your eyes on that first morning the abyss of each dilated pupil. Like an intruder that can't be shut out, it is the appearance of this image that triggers an intense alertness in my body and heralds the mental reenactment of that first morning. The miracle of the girls not seeing what was happening seems quite unreal, like a film where the action is carefully choreographed to heighten the scene's emotional charge, their innocence, counterpointed against my private terror. Thinking about it makes me queasy. These two realities cannot avoid each other indefinitely. Eventually they will collide. The cold pricks my arms, bringing me back to the present. The sky is gaining depth as it lightens. 
I leave the bedroom and descend the stairs to lay out the breakfast things. This excerpt, taken from texts I wrote after my partner's arterial dissection, relates to the period immediately after she was transferred from intensive care to the ward. Though out of immediate danger, her consultant was at pains to stress that locked-in syndrome was now increasingly the most probable outcome. This is, as it sounds, complete paralysis of the body which leaves the mind trapped within. I was in a state of near-constant hyper-arousal. My thoughts were ambushed by troubling images, and my sleep was fitful and disturbed. Sometime the following week, though, after putting the girls to bed, I found myself at the kitchen table, drawing. I'd just returned to teaching and being involved again in the thought processes and physical action of making. The unfolding line felt very instinctive tracing my eye's movement over the crockery left out after dinner. It created a strange sense of calm. Now, drawing is central to my artistic practice, but this was quite unrelated. It was simply me trying to respond in real time to the sensory experience of seeing, and looking back on it, maybe just being present. A few days later, I found myself trying to carve out time to make another one. And in fact, Over the course of the months and years of my partner's recovery, drawing offered solace in the quiet evenings alone. It opened up a space where I could hold my thoughts. In seeking to explain what might have been going on when I made these drawings, Professor Chris Bruin's dual representation theory is compelling. It proposes two separate memory systems working in parallel. One linguistic, which places events within a historical timeline. The second, sensory, usually visual, capturing relatively unprocessed perceptual details. Each involves different sections of the brain, which allows two distinct representations to arise in response to a single experience. A contextual representation, citing the event at a particular time and place and a sensation-based representation, rather like a snapshot of some of the sensory details with little or no conceptual organisation. Contextual memory is assumed to depend on prefrontal areas of the brain as well as medial temporal lobe structures such as the hippocampus, those areas responsible for higher-order cognitive control. It contains records of conscious experience which can be either automatically or deliberately retrieved and it's autobiographical. Sensation-based memory, on the other hand, is thought to be supported primarily by subcortical structures and by areas of the brain directly involved in perception. As such, it contains detailed but largely unprocessed and inflexible sensory and perceptual images, which are only accessible involuntarily and which, lacking contextual detail, are experienced as happening in the present. The theory proposes that both systems are part of normal memory function. Ordinarily, 
sensation-based representations are brought into dialogue with their corresponding contextual representations and decay rapidly as they become integrated into an autobiographical timeline. Post-traumatic stress disorder occurs when the two memory systems function abnormally, and encoding involves a relatively stronger sensation-based representation, a relatively weaker contextual representation with impaired correspondence between the two. So, if the issue is how to bring these two separate memory systems into dialogue, how might this relate to the drawings I made? My observations were very much about the structure of what I saw, rather than its meaning or significance. And sketching brought into play a number of distinct patterns of looking, so that the same visual data was interrogated from a number of different perspectives. It meant that objects no longer determined quite so absolutely how I made sense of the visual world, and instead of one interpretation, through drawing what I saw gain multiple visual identities. Could this management of uncertainty in relation to different frames of reference be significant? And making these sketches seem to regulate my attention too, so that Rather than having a generalised and all-pervasive anxiety, it kind of gave me a place to focus. And in many respects, the mental acuity involved seemed to almost normalise the absolute hyper-reality and intensity of my perceptions at that point. What I've learned is that drawing involves mental activities that are likely to engage the hippocampus, one of the parts of the brain responsible for creating contextual memories. Things like reflecting on borders, interrogating spatial relationships, or looking at things from different perspectives would significantly encourage this. By bringing online this part of the brain, the intensity of intruding perceptual images could diminish as they're brought more fully into the autobiographical memory system. This apparently would be particularly so if what I'd drawn related directly to the traumatic event itself. My sketches were actually simply a response to the things left out on the kitchen table, but Making them, I increasingly felt that what I was actually engaging with had something to do with absence. These were objects related to our shared history, but laid out in ways that lacked my partner's particular spatial or aesthetic sensibility. So in some respects, directing my attention at these inanimate objects each night accented what was missing. And this lack never diminished. It's probably instructive at this point to consider the Tetris computer game study, undertaken by Emily Holmes, Professor of Psychology at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and Dr. Lali Ayadure, Research Clinical Psychologist at Oxford University. So... This was a randomised control trial carried out at John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford involving Tetris computer gameplay. 
It was hypothesized that its high visuospatial demands would selectively disrupt the consolidation of the visual sensory elements of memory, i.e. those that underpin intrusions, via competition for limited cognitive resources. Memory consolidation theory suggests a time window of several hours post-trauma during which memory is malleable. And so patients delivered to the hospital within six hours of a motor vehicle accident were asked to play Tetris for 20 minutes after a trauma memory reminder. This intervention reduced the number of intrusive memories in the subsequent week by 62% compared to the control group who were given an attention placebo. Asking participants in the trial to recall their memory of their accident is important. Psychological research suggests that Tetris inhibits the initial consolidation of memory or else creates new ones only if it's combined with a reminder of the distressing events. Making drawing clearly involves high visuospatial demands. And when I started making mine, frankly, it was impossible not to think about what had happened. Whilst my motivation for undertaking these sketches may have been to do with settling my emotions and becoming more present, upsetting images were most certainly always in mind as they were made. But what about this six-hour window within which trauma memory is malleable and vulnerable to disruption? Could this still pertain three weeks later? It seems that it could potentially As these intense sensation-based images were present at the time of drawing, it's possible for the two to be combined, i.e. the original sensation-based memory being brought into dialogue with a new contextual memory relating to the drawing. In this respect, it seems it could have parallels with the Tetris experiment. So, The theory suggests that connecting intrusive perceptual images to my subsequent experience of drawing changes my response to them by bringing them into autobiographical memory. Specifically, that by drawing in the presence of these images, thereafter, whenever they come to mind, to an extent they become linked with the experience of making the drawings. Not that I was necessarily aware of this. Through drawing, I exercised a strong degree of control, and that was quite unlike the initial powerlessness I felt. And I produced something that felt creative and positive. To an extent, it perhaps gave me a different self-image in the face of these intrusions, having some kind of agency rather than simply feeling overwhelmed. And the suggestion is that it is this new state of mind that gradually becomes associated with the experience of these intrusive images, so gradually diminishing their intensity. Empirically, I felt that making the sketches played a significant role in helping me to manage my trauma. And exploring this theory, reflecting on the mental processes potentially involved, seems to lend credence to this view. But it also bolsters my conviction that its positive effects may be transferable. I suppose another thing that's always intrigued me is the effect that drawing can have on the body, particularly the way that it regulates breathing in favour of slower, deeper breath cycles. Could this be significant? 
It's clear that the focused attention involved in drawing was helpful in allowing me to gain greater emotional control. Maybe drawing's effect on breathing plays into this too. It occurs to me that perhaps some aspects of the drawing process are related specifically to altering the upsetting images, whilst others are more general to do with changing emotional outlook, that there may in fact be a number of distinct processes involved concurrently. In my next podcast, I'd like to explore this further. I'm interested to investigate how the physical practice of drawing might impact on the autonomic nervous system with its influence on emotional states. Whether what is happening in the body when drawing is undertaken could also be significant. (music) 